Well, let's open our Bibles now to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, as we have been considering together John's prologue, uh, starting last week. Again this morning, we will come to this prologue, and then tonight at our Christmas Eve service, we'll, we'll finish our, our look at this prologue of John as, as Christ is revealed to us as the Word became flesh. So as you are able, once more, let's rise to our feet in honor of the word of the Lord. Again, we don't do this out of empty ritual. We do this to remind ourselves of where the authority lies, and it is in God's living word. Hear now the word of the Lord from John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. For this good and pure and perfect gift that by your spirits working through your word, we have been brought from death to life, from darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, by the same spirit working through the same word, you transform us day by day more and more into the likeness of Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our God. I pray now, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and among us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. As we saw last week, John, in the prologue of his gospel, he doesn't start with a genealogy. He doesn't start with some sort of earthly history of the coming of Christ. He starts right off plunging us into deep mystery, into awe, into wonder. Last week, as we looked at verses 1 through 5, we saw Jesus as the eternal word. Jesus, truly God. Jesus, fully God. Jesus, the creator of all things. We read in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
without him was not anything made that has been made. This is a categorical statement. It is perfectly clear. There is no room for any confusion here. This word. And when we, when, when we sing Christmas carols and we, we come to the Christmas season and there's all this talk of the little baby. When we sing of this baby, when we speak of this baby, when we look into the face of this baby, this is who we are talking about. This eternal word, this word who existed eternally, was not created. In fact, he created all things. Charles Spurgeon says this, we cannot describe the deity of Christ in clearer language than John uses here. He was with God. He was God. He did the works of God, for he was the creator. If any doubt his deity, they must do so in distinct defiance of the language of Holy Scripture. That is is absolutely true. John is so perfectly clear here about who Jesus is. In the beginning, with God, was God, created all things. As Spurgeon says, you have to defy the clear teaching of Scripture to come to any other conclusion about him whatsoever. John has made it undeniable for us. In just, in just so few words, Jesus is the creator God. And we saw last week, Jesus, Jesus is presented to us by John as light and life. Verse 4, in him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't stand a chance. The darkness is driven out always by this light. The darkness cannot overpower this light. The darkness cannot extinguish this light. The darkness cannot block this light out. And and the one who is within himself, life, John says, is the one who gives life. And since, since the one who gives life is the one who has within himself life, what it means is no one can take that life away. What, what stunning statements. The light shines and the darkness can't take it away. The one who is life gives life and no one can take it away. Today we're going to be focusing on this statement in verse 14. Look there with me. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. What an astounding. As John has, has, has brought us to a place of awe. At this word. This eternal word. To hear these words then. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. We'll be, we'll be really zeroing in on that statement. Both this morning and then again. Tonight, two more aspects we see of who this word is, of who Jesus is. One this morning, one tonight. First, this morning we're going to be looking at the incarnation of the word, of of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The incarnation, God become man. Tonight, we'll consider then the glory of this word. The incarnation of the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh. The the, the first five words here 
of verse 14 are, are perhaps the most profound words in the entire Bible. As it has been revealed to us exactly who this word is, to then say that, that the word became flesh, is stunning. It provides for us an excellent summary of the incarnation. The, the glory of Christmas, it's not trees and lights and presents. It's certainly not Santa Claus, although we enjoy all of those things. The glory of, the, of Christmas is this, it's the incarnation. It's the incarnation. The, these words are stunning. The word became flesh. They're stunning because of who Jesus is. Last week we saw this, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. Jesus is eternal. No beginning, no ending, not bound by time. He, in fact, created time. Well, we can't even fathom what it, would, what it would look like to not be bound by time. He created it. Jesus is truly God, fully God, omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omnipresent, he, everywhere, all the time. Omniscient, he knows all things, all things actual, all things potential, anything there could possibly be to be known. Jesus, John says, was with God, as we saw last week, in the full love and unity of the triune Godhead, existing eternally in bliss, with no lack God, God did not need to create us so that love could have an object. God did not need to create us because of loneliness, full pleasure, full joy, full love within the triune Godhead. John tells us Jesus created all things, everything you can think of in the entire universe. He did that. This word, this baby of Christmas. It also means he can't be created. As we saw last week, he would have to have created himself for that to be true. This, this is the word. This is the word who became flesh. Nate Pickwick says this. Christmas is not ultimately about a baby being born in a manger, but about the Lord of heaven coming to earth to rescue his people. This is what Christmas is. It's the word become flesh. It's not just a birth, it's an incarnation. It's an astonishing thing to think that the creator of all things would become human. We can't imagine that kind of condescending, of laying down of glory. What's even more mind-blowing is the way that he did it. He didn't spring into life fully formed as some magnificent adult male with, with, with all of life's uh, splendors and, and, and pleasures associated with it. That's not how he came. Doug Wilson says this, the eternal word became a single cell and then a cluster of cells and then a visible baby, although still less than a pound, and then a child who kicked his mother from inside delighting her immeasurably. He, the eternal word, the one who spoke the galaxies into existence, was willing to become a little baby boy who could do nothing with words except jabber. And in that jabbering, make glad his mother and earthly father. He, the source of all life and all nourishment for that life, was willing to be breastfed. 
He, the same one who had separated the night from the day and had shaped the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night, was willing to have his diapers changed for a year or so. This is not astounding. But before, before the incarnation, before the word became flesh, Jesus had never experienced any need whatsoever. No physical pain, no rejection, no poverty, no hunger, no thirst. He'd never been too cold or too hot. He had never been bored. He'd never felt shame or exhaustion. He'd never, he'd never known the oppression of some wicked government. He'd never even been frustrated. He'd never been confused. He'd never even been a little bit sad. He never had acne. He never had body odor. He never had bad breath. He had certainly never experienced helplessness. He had never experienced infancy, where you're depending on others for everything. All that this word knew from all of eternity eternity was the fullness of divine pleasure. The full exercise of divine rule and authority. And he left that willingly and the word became flesh. Experiencing all that we experience yet without sin. It's mind blowing. It's mind blowing to consider all that he left behind. Fullness of joy within the triune Godhead. Full authority as the sovereign God. Jesus from all eternity doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And he laid it down, and the word became flesh. This word flesh here is is very important. There were people living in Jesus' day who who believed that that what's truly good is the spiritual, and that the material world is, is in its very essence corrupt and sinful. And so the whole point of religion to them is escape the material world. Get out of the body and just be spiritual. So John's choice of words here is very important. John uses the crudest word possible. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. It's a a word so crass that, that Paul uses it to describe our sinful nature. When Paul speaks of our sinfulness, he calls it the flesh. Now that's not what, what, what it means here, obviously, But what John is saying is is this eternal word, this, this word who created all things became a man in the totality of what it means to be in human flesh. He fully entered into our world. There was was nothing of our human nature and experience except for sin that he did not take upon himself. So what the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2 Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This expression, equality with God. Equality with God is what this word is what Christ has had eternally. Equality with God. All the privileges of Godness. And he says he didn't consider that something to be grasped. Something to be held on to at all costs. 
So so what he's saying here is the exercise of his divine privilege wasn't something he clung to. It wasn't something that he wouldn't let go of. It wasn't something he wouldn't lay down. It certainly wasn't something he was going to exploit for his own benefit. Instead, Paul says he emptied himself. In humility, he condescended to our level. In humility, he counted our interests as more significant than his own. What an amazing thing. When he says he emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he was emptied of his deity. That never happened. Not for one second. He was not emptied of his deity. Jesus Christ remained what he had always been eternally. There's been no point in any of eternity where where Christ did not remain what he had always been. But he added to that. He took on flesh. He, He added a human nature to his divine nature. We talked about that last week. It's called the hypostatic union. It means that that Christ, the incarnation means Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. He added human nature to his divinity. The word became flesh. And then John says, and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. Dwell literally is he pitched his tent. He tabernacled. Long term, he, he dwelt among us. John's evoking images here from the Old Testament. For, for a time, God's presence tabernacled. It, it dwelt among the midst of God's people in the tabernacle. This is where, where man and God met. This is the place where God's glory dwelled. And now God has decided to dwell among his people in an even more personal way. A more personal way than having a tabernacle that we can see in the center of the camp. In a more personal way than having a tabernacle that we can, we can surround and that some people can go into and they can hear from God. They can offer sacrifices. They can meet with God in a more personal way and in a much more humble way. God has decided to dwell with his people through his incarnate son. Jesus now is the place where man meets God. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And really it's not man meeting God, it's God meeting man. We're not the initiators here, it's, it's God doing all of it. That's why one author says Christmas is not simply about a birth, it's about a coming. It's about the coming of God himself to save his people. Jesus didn't, didn't, didn't simply come, though, to die on a cross. He, he came to do much more. He, he didn't just come in. God, God could have just done this all in a weekend, if that was the whole point. Instead of over 33 years, he actually came to dwell among us, to experience all the pain and hardships of life, about 33 years of them, yet without sin, And he didn't just die for us, he lived for us. Perfectly fulfilling the law of God. This is called the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ. In his living, he was our substitute as well. 
We don't have any kind of earthly comparisons to make for that. We don't want to have any kind of analogies to, oh, it's like this, what God did for us. Everything falls so painfully short. A human dwelling among an ant colony? No, that doesn't do it. A king or a president living in a cardboard box in downtown Chicago, which is a cesspool, by the way, I saw this week. No, that doesn't do it either. None of these work because we're comparing two finite things and God is infinite. Nothing even comes close to this. Why though? Well, why, why would the infinite, eternal word become flesh and dwell among us? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is about to divorce Mary after he learns that, that um, she is with child, to use the uh, softened language. After he learns she's pregnant, he's going to divorce her. Because he knows that he's not the father of this child. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and says this. Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For this child is of the Holy Spirit. And then the angel says this to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sin. So why did Jesus come? Why did the word become flesh? It was in order to save his people from their sin. It was in order to save us from our sin. What does it mean to be saved from sin? Well, first is this. We're saved from the wrath of God. Salvation as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, is a rescue. It's a rescuing. It's, it's someone who needs rescued. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Then he says this in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's why we need to be saved. That's why we need the power of God for salvation because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And so to be saved from our sins, first of all, means to be saved from the just and holy and pure and righteous and good wrath of God. This wrath of God that is being revealed, it is it is. It is Coming down from heaven. This wrath of God that each one of us deserves because of our rebellion against God. Sin is, sin is not just bad habits. Sin is not just mistakes. Sin is not just, I could have done better here, I'll try to learn in the future. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is defiance of God. Sin is a despising of God and his law. And that rebellion and that defiance and that despising results in the wrath of God being poured out. The wrath of God that is just. The wrath of God that is pure. The wrath of God that is deserved. 
The good news is this, Romans 3, verse 24. Paul says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Oh, the good news is so good. I love that word, propitiation. A lot of people don't understand that word anymore. I hope that if this is your church, you do understand it. Propitiation. How are we saved from the wrath of God? It is this. Jesus took the cup of wrath that had been poured out full strength for you and for your sin. And he turned it upside down and he drank every last bitter drop so that there is not one tiniest amount of liquid of wrath left for you. It is dry. It is gone. That is propitiation. This is what Christ Christian did for you and for me. This is what the gospel tells us. Second, we are saved from the penalty of our sin. Romans chapter 4, verse 7, quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count our sin. Our sin is rebellion. Our sin is a huge deal. It is a cosmic treason against the holy God, the righteous king. Yet the promise of the gospel is this. If Jesus paid it all, there's nothing left for us to pay. And not only that, the great exchange that took place on the cross was, was not just him bearing the wrath for our sin. It was his eternal, spotless righteousness being credited to us. This eternal word who has existed in eternal bliss within the triune Godhead. We are now credited with all of that. That's ours by faith. In him. So it doesn't mean that God ignores our sin. God cannot ignore our sin. His holiness forbids that. Sin must be dealt with. It must be atoned for. He is very much aware of our sin, but he no longer counts it against us. Why? Because he's already counted it against Christ. Because he's a righteous judge. Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're saved from the penalty of our sin because Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for us but eternal delight. How could that be? Third, then, we're saved from the dominion, the, the absolute reign of, of sin. Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 13, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. See, b- before this, we didn't even have the option to grow in Christ-likeness. We, we were slaves to sin. We were spiritually dead in sin. We belonged body and soul to the domain of darkness. But now, now having been set free by Christ's victory in his incarnation and in his sinless life and his substitutionary death and his glorious resurrection, having been set free and brought into his kingdom, having the spirit of God, the third person of the triune God had come dwell within us. 
to empower us, to enable us to obey him, we can now grow in maturity. We can grow in all ways into Christ's likeness. We can live a life that actually glorifies God where once all we did was sin. But we are no longer slaves to sin because this word took on flesh to become our mediator. A mediator, somebody who goes between two parties. If someone mediates for us, To make an introduction. We don't know someone and they know them. And someone mediates and introduces us. Someone mediates perhaps to solve a conflict between two parties. Someone mediates so that we can invest our money in a retirement savings. Usually a mediator has some commonality between the two parties. The mediator comes then as a go-between. Between those two parties. But if Jesus of Nazareth, if, if the word had only exclusively been God. Not the God-man. Not come in the flesh. Not the Word taking on flesh, but the Word doing what the Word had always done, which is existing in full glory and power for all eternity and didn't change that. Then there'd be no way for Him to be the mediator between us and the righteous judge of all. John tells us The way that Jesus came to be a mediator was by becoming flesh. God became man. J.C. Ryle says Christ is the meeting point between the Trinity and sinners' souls. Jesus took on flesh so that he could live for us, so that he could die for us, because the wages of sin is death, and we have sinned. We have rebelled against God, and therefore, in order to be our substitute, in order to be our mediator, in order to be our sympathetic great high priest, he took on flesh. He took on flesh and obeyed God's law in all things And then died the death that we deserve. This this atonement, this salvation, it didn't start when the first nails went in to Jesus' hand on the cross. It didn't stop when Jesus breathed his last earthly breath. The entire life of Christ is involved in our salvation from his conception onward. And so this... This time of year, when we consider Christmas, we are considering astounding things. We do well to stop and to ponder what the incarnation really means. To move beyond little thoughts of little babies. And trite Christmas decorations. Don't dismiss this as some kind of vain theological speculation. This is the truth upon which your eternal destiny hangs. This is a truth that's overflowing with beauty, overflowing with glory, overflowing with mystery and majesty. The word became flesh. God became a human The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death. 
The transcendent one condescended and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The unbreakable became fragile. Spirit became matter. Eternity entered into time. The independent became dependent. The Almighty took on weakness. The exalted was humbled. Glory itself was subjected to shame. This word took on flesh. From his eternal throne to a cross. From being a ruler to being ruled. From power to weakness. Consider the eternal weight of these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This revelation should should cause us to stand in awe. should take our breath away. What's the connection between this revelation from God and you? Verse 16 tells us the answer. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus didn't just come to show us grace. He came to give us grace. There's a big difference between those two things. There's a big difference between Jesus the good example and Jesus the giver of life. He didn't just come to show us grace. He came to give us grace and we must receive it. God doesn't just want to fill our heads with knowledge about his truth and his grace. He wants you to receive it. He wants you, Christian, to experience it. He wants to give you a foundation of truth to stand on so that you won't falter, so you won't fall under the weight of stress and worry and trials. He wants to pour out his grace on you to forgive all your sins. All your sins. To take away all your guilt. To make your conscience clean. To give you strength to live for him each day. To fill you with hope and joy and peace. This is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But you must receive it. You must receive it. Verse 11 says, he came to his own and what? His own did not receive him. What, what better time? What better time than right now to stop resisting? To lay down your arms and give up the war. Don't resist his grace this Christmas. Receive it. Welcome it. Welcome it for the gift that it is, the astounding gift. Let it fill your heart with everlasting joy. Let yourself be amazed at a God who would go to such great lengths, even taking on human flesh and and dwelling with us. 
even suffering in our place, even absorbing God's wrath in our place, all that, also that he could shower his grace on us forever. What a God. What a gospel. We close with these words from, from John Calvin. It says, when the Son of God was thrown into a stable, placed in a manger, and a lodging was refused to him among men, it was so that heaven might be open to us, not as a temporary lodging, but as our eternal country and inheritance. This is what God has done. This is what God has done because the word became flesh. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your great salvation. Lord, we rejoice in your wisdom. Lord, what mind could have conceived of so great a salvation? Lord, we rejoice in your power. Your power to save. Lord, your power to to come and to seek your own and to make them your own. Your power, Lord, to, to forgive our sins, to break us free from our bondage in death. Your power to hold and to keep. We rejoice in your grace. Lord, we who are so undeserving, your creation who rebelled against you. And yet, Lord, you've chosen to glorify yourself by being gracious to us, even us. And Lord, in, in, in your glorious grace that you have revealed to us in your word that you take great delight in us. This is not some begrudging salvation that you offer. You delight in us, even as you delight in your son. And so we... We can't comprehend that, but we glory in you. I do pray, Lord, for those that are in this room whose hearts are far from you. I pray for those for whom, Lord, they do not have peace this Christmas. As we, as we speak and we sing of, of the Prince of Peace and of, of your peace that's come to all with whom you are pleased, Lord, they're, they're, their hearts are far from you and they're not at peace at all. I pray, God, in your mercy, by your spirit, in this moment, you would convict them. Lift their eyes to behold their Savior. Show them their desperate need for salvation and show them the glories and the goodness and the grace of your good gospel. I pray, God, that, that, that this, this Christmas, this day, would be the day of salvation for them. I pray for those whom you have saved but whose hearts are are distant from you. They've, they've backslidden. I pray, Lord, again, this day, you would call them, draw them to yourself. Cease their striving and their running. Cause them to come and to know fullness of joy, fullness of peace. To walk in a manner worthy of the high calling to which you've called them. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would make us faithful ambassadors of this king and of his kingdom. Not just at Christmas time, Lord, but, but in every day that you have given to us, that we would make much of the time that you have given to us. That, that we would bring glory to your name. 
Pray for us individually and as a church, Lord, that we would be faithful and fruitful for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.